I'm Smith Stanfield from the History Department of the University of Texas at El Paso. Our first set of podcasts were recorded in the studio on the UTEP campus with local experts on various topics. While COVID-19 has forced us out of the studio, it has opened the door to recording remotely and interviewing experts from all over. So the sound of the interviews might be a bit different, but the quality and format remains the same. Recording remotely allows me to interview Dr. Holly Pinero, an assistant professor of history at Augusta University in Georgia. He is an expert on the African-American experience during the Civil War era, and I'm excited to learn so much more about this topic. Dr. Pinero's book, The Family Civil War, is forthcoming from the University of Georgia Press. Welcome, Holly. Thank you very much, uh, Sue, for allowing me to be here, and hello to listeners out there, and hopefully my audio is good to go. Yes. All right. So um, I guess to start out with, I think the uh, the role of African-American um, men and soldiers um, during the, the Civil War can be confusing. Um, certainly, as the war begins, you know, Lincoln wasn't, you know, he didn't run for president as a, a strict abolitionist. And the focus initially, at least, was on preserving the Union. And so after Fort Sumter, when Lincoln makes that first call for troops, I was wondering, um, were African-Americans included in this call? So I guess to give a little context, um, so my research is looking at uh, the Black Philadelphian experience, uh, particularly from 1850 into the 1920s, to really see how uh, the Civil War was actually part of this larger uh, race war against uh, the free Blacks in, in, these, in the city. Uh, to your question about uh, the Lincoln's first call, uh, technically, no. It was, uh, it was privileged towards white men, and actually that goes to a previous um, federal policy, um, basically, which denied black men the ability to serve in the military. African-American men in places like Philadelphia and New York City, New York, uh, did try to mobilize uh, on a number of uh, instances, but were actually either threatened with jail time, in the case of New York, um, or they were basically being politely, and I'm putting quotes around that, um, encouraged to leave and disperse. But there was this constant agitation by a number of African-American men um, who saw this as an opportunity to restructure American society. Because for a number of them, uh, they saw it as an opportunity to not only end slavery, uh, but to reshape the role, uh, their, their role within society in terms of politics, gender, uh, and even economic status. So are there specific reasons um, why the average guy might have enlisted? Or is it wrapped up into these ideas of um, role within society, um, you know, citizenship, things like that. Well, I think the thing that's interesting is um, the majority of African American men um, and Africans who will serve in the Civil War in USCT regiments are actually in, formerly enslaved. So less that are freeborn in the North will enlist. Having said that, they they serve eventually for a number of reasons. Um, you have the sons of Frederick Douglass, at least two of his, who will serve for the ideal, idealistic notions, right? The idea of uh, have, putting the eagle on their button, as their father will say, uh, will demonstrate that they are full citizens in this country, even though they're being denied, for example, the right to vote. For others, it is going to eventually be about economic restitution in terms of uh, a bounty, whether it's state or federal. Others have a direct connection to slavery, right? So in some of the examples of the 178 black soldiers that I examine, some of them are the first generation freeborn. So it is quite possible since some of their relatives uh, were born in Virginia 
uh, and in South Carolina, for example, they may have enlisted with the the personal connection to maybe go find their relatives or to honestly just stop this from furthering on. Uh, but it's it's really complicated because at the same time, a number of African Americans basically don't want to do it for different reasons. Uh, so it's actually more complicated than even a film like Glory, which I love, um, illustrates. Uh, we we only look at the the idealistic, the joy, the the, the call to arms, but we're not looking at what happens once we pull these men and young boys into service. So I was wondering, so what are the logistics of enlistment? Like what do people get paid? What do you, you know, what is provided them? And, uh, and so what would, what would happen when you, when you go wherever it is you go to, to sign up? So it depends on the period of time. So if we're talking, you know, by, uh, the Second Confiscation Act and the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 um, and the Enrollment Act later, which are basically going to make it to where African-Americans, uh, and, well, Blacks in general, um, can serve in the, the Union Army and Navy, uh, but they're not, they're going to be paid $3 less, um, usually with the cause that uh, for their clothing deduction. But what actually happens is they get paid even $3 less so in many cases, they're only getting $7 per month. And unfortunately, they and even white soldiers will not get paid for up to nine months. Uh, those who serve within 1863 as official soldiers, most don't get a federal bounty, uh, which is actually really interesting because that's something I'm going to focus on in my book is the the time with which one did enlist. Part of that I am speculating also had to do with the financial um, incentive. So if, for example, someone enlisted after 1864, you could get a $300 federal bounty. Um, the other motivation could be if you got a local bounty. So one of the gentlemen, for example, in New York City, Peter Vandermark, will get $800 to enlist in a collection of federal and state and county bounties, which is actually impressive since the average laborer at the time was making about $300. So that was- Yeah, that's a chunk of change. Yeah, yeah. it was very unique um, and also helped their families, right? So pay mattered. Um, Actually, Charles Howard, who will later serve in the 26th United States Colored Infantry or USCI, outright says he didn't care about the war. He wanted the money. Uh, And so his enlistment directly goes against the idealism of someone like Frederick Douglass or or even Anna Dickinson, who are going to say that there is there's more than just, um, for example, money. It's about citizenship. It's about the ending of slavery. It's about white society acknowledging what African-Americans and Africans viewed of themselves, that they're people. Um, So, yes, money does matter, but it's. The logistics of pay is going to be difficult for all soldiers, and this is not just an anomaly for African Americans. Uh, but the problem becomes the racial discriminatory policy does only affect USCT soldiers. So the movie Glory, when it shows like you know they're slow to get their uniforms and yes. uh, the different pay, is that fairly accurate? Uh, so for my regiments, which I'm uh, specifically focusing on, the third, uh, the sixth, and the eighth United States Colored Infantry, that all serve uh, from Pennsylvania regiments and mobilize in Philadelphia primarily. There isn't an issue, at least in the records, about their uniforms, um, you know, the delayed in getting them. Uh, having said that, part of that is because the 54th and the 55th, they enlisted earlier, right? right. They, were, they were essentially one of the standard bearers, even though there was Southern um, Black regiments that actually enlisted prior to the 54th and 55th. So that issue didn't come up with these uh, regiments that I focus on. 
But the pay, oh yeah, that's a big issue. Uh, and it's even going to be an issue once the federal government will pass a policy in 1864, which uh, attempts to regulate uh, the pay. Um, there's going to be a mutiny in Jacksonville with a number of uh, Pennsylvanian soldiers that leads to their execution. Uh, and even throughout the war, the inability to have a paymaster regularly in a timely fashion make their payments does lead to a number of soldiers uh, engaging in desertion um, and various military disobedience acts, which will include example I'm going to use for an article I'm working on. Uh, one of the soldiers actually forges the signature of his fellow soldier and his lieutenant colonel in order to get to steal the pay from someone else because he's so desperate for money. Uh, so money is always an issue. So were there any um, black-led regiments? You know, I know from watching Glory, you know, it's a, a white officer. But right. um, do they eventually change that? Uh, unfortunately, no. As far as um, the, how do I qualify that? Racial uh, segregated um, units were a thing in the USCT, but to that point, which you actually allude to, the officers were white. So technically, they're integrated in the sense that they're not all black. It's just the unfortunate reality is that the officers that are commanding and leading these soldiers into the into the front lines in many cases are white. There were opportunities for African Americans to become officers, but that was usually as like a chaplain. Uh, and in that case, they're not seen as having a leadership role in terms of delineating orders to any soldier, which would have threatened white masculinity. Um, that policy essentially will continue on well into the early 20th century. Uh, having said that, that did not stop African Americans and the black community and the white allies for asking or demanding to end that policy. And that does impact a number of Northerners saying, why should we serve? Why should I be subjugated under the authority of this white man? Right. Uh, so this becomes a point of contention and actually leads to a number of black Philadelphians outright saying in their local churches, we're not going. Mm -hmm. I refuse to give up my individuality to be subservient to this white officer. So I know that there are, um you know, quite a few, you know, obviously official military records. So we can, mm -hmm. you know, learn, you know, physical attributes and, you know, as people are mustered out, we can, we can see things about them, but, you know, you're writing about families as well. And um, I'm kind of curious, how do you, how do you tell this story? What sort of sources helped you piece together this sort of more social history rather than a, a military history? So the, the records that I'm using for this book um, is, and actually all my research, uh, is a compilation of various military records. So we're talking about regimental books, which are, they can be rather dry. I'm not going to lie. Uh, it, it's basically going to have the list of each regiment's company, you know, where they, where the soldier enlisted, their date of birth, their uh, civilian employment, um, any issues were, you know, were they deserting? Was there any disciplinary actions? Um, but then it will also have information on the officers. Um, so that's one. Then there's the compiled military service records, which can actually give you more information on, did they receive a federal bounty? Um, was there any disciplinary actions? Did they receive a promotion? Were they injured? Were they relocated to a different unit? Um, there's a lot in there. One of the caveats I... I always have to address, as many other scholars have already noted, these records are flawed, right? Like, which makes it hard. Uh, part of it could be that someone lied about their date of birth, or they didn't know it. Um, they could have lied about being free. 
And part of that becomes with the motivation that uh, when you're freeborn, you actually qualify for a federal bounty in the way that you wouldn't if you were freed. Um, the other one is that they may have lied about their pre-service uh, occupation. Or the other one is that the person taking the information didn't really care and listen properly to what the person was saying for different reasons and just took down whatever they thought the individual said. So that can make it hard. Um, I cross-reference all of that with um, some of the other camp military records, which gets into a lot of issues of desertion, which I see at a high rate. Uh, a great number of Black soldiers desert within the first month of service because they realize, I don't want to do this anymore. Or the, the idealism doesn't match reality. I even have cases of some Black soldiers who will desert to the enemy, which I still can't wrap my head around fully. Because... Um, why would a free black uh, northerner do that? And I'm still trying to unpack that. Uh, that's all cross-referenced with the federal census, which is great, but also really dry. <laughs> uh, I don't know if anyone's looked at a census, but uh, it uh, doesn't give you a lot of depth, but at the same time it does. And what I mean is it'll give you household information, It'll, but it's going to be done every 10 years, as we know. But it's going to tell you the age, uh, marriage information, hopefully. Um, their birthplace, their occupation at the time, um, their real estate, uh, their uh, personal property, are they literate, were they at school, like these kinds of things. And those actually are, are, I've come to realize, extremely awesome sources because it fills in a lot of the gaps. Um, because what that basically does is it proves to me what happens to these people after, um, but also who they were before, right? Like now I can, I can find, for example, that a soldier like, um, let me pull up my list here, <laughs> um, that Benjamin Davis, um, who was later killed as a prisoner of war, um, you know, who his, who his parents were, uh, that, that a number of my soldiers were brothers. Uh, William H. Parker and Robert G. Parker are actually related, uh, and they live in a residence with their cousin who will later serve, right? So I have in the antebellum records the fact that three soldiers – as children live together and will serve and have a really complicated story after the war. Uh, so those are really great. Um, and being able to trace what happens to them after in a way that doesn't always come up in the civil war pension records, which um, are absolutely amazing, but they're extremely, there's a lot of material in them. Um, they also bring their own complications as most of these records do, because the motivation for applying for a pension centered on a number of issues uh, one of the most important was hopefully financial uh, restitution. The other, which I'm and others are, are teasing out, is that this becomes a battleground for public memory, right? Like uh, one thing I'm trying to stress in my work is, and others have as well, is that by applying for a pension, even if the widow, the child, or the veteran did not receive it, the fact that the federal government is even listening to their story, that these people are so diligent in their application process that they will in some cases get numerous officers and fellow enlisted men and people in their community to speak on their behalf, not always positively, is a demonstration that the community, that these people are continuing a fight over their place in history. Um, so it's, but at the same time, these sources... Can, uh, which I can talk about later, reveal some information that I personally don't know if was my business to know because they're so invasive uh, into Black life, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. And then finally, I would just say, cross-referencing this with the Black newspapers. Black newspapers are absolutely amazing. Um, 
So I'm looking at the Christian Recorder, which is directly connected to the African Methodist Episcopal Church or AME Church and the uh, Weekly Anglo-African, which publishes out of New York City, New York. A lot of black soldiers, um, not just from my regiments, but black soldiers in general, published their uh, writings and their feelings on the war in these papers, which is awesome. Because they're much more critical in some cases of their officers, of their fellow soldiers, of what the, what's the point of war, but also the joy that they have. So it, it's a way to really get at the frontline experience through the black press. So by mixing these materials together, I'm able to tell a story of African-American life for free northern people in a hopefully a fresh, more expansive way than has been done. Well, so yeah, I, I was going to say... <laughs> You know, suddenly historians uh, are thinking more about the home front during the Civil War. And whether it's North or South, um, you know, it, it tends to be imagined as white. And right. so as someone that looks at women's history, you know, I, I read a lot about what white women did in terms of the war effort. And I was kind of curious, um, given racism at the time and segregation, did um, women of color have the same opportunities to contribute to the war effort in, say, Philadelphia. Right. So I think for me, and this is something as an educator, I often have to demonstrate, um, hopefully, to my students. Women have always been involved in, in global national conflicts, right? Like not just the Civil War. Like women are always there. And I don't just mean um, through like emotional support. Like in some cases, they're on the front lines, especially if we're talking about white women uh, in the Confederacy, which obviously goes beyond my expertise, but they're there. In the North, they're there as well, uh, whether we're talking about the United States Sanitary Commission, all of the different ways in which we're uh, the sanitary fairs, the nursing organizations. My second book, which I'm starting to formulate, is actually going to look at Philadelphian saloons, which are not bars, to be clear, <laughs> but these are actually um, very important spaces in which white women uh, are going to reshape um, their role in society, right? They're going to be the ones pushing for medical treatment. Uh, emotional support, creating hospitals, cemeteries, writing stations. Uh, they will also, in some cases, um, help um, soldiers who are transitioning back home. They'll bring in Black soldiers who are on their way to the front lines by giving them a parade, right? But that space was privileged for white women. At the same time, uh, free Northern Black women are always going to make themselves visible, um, whether it's in their community or on a national scale to the war. So we have Charlotte Fortin, for example, who will, you know, basically go down south and become an educator. Uh, that's one way to do it. Um, for the women that I'm focusing on, they will actually go to the military camps. They will go, and, and I'm talking at Camp William Penn in Philadelphia, they will go there and visit. They will go there in some cases, and Benjamin Davis, and just to be clear, he's going to be a person that his family is woven throughout my story because they're so fascinating. And I'm hopefully going to write a, a screenplay about them because they're just that amazing. Uh, his widow, uh, Mary Leeton, will bring their newborn child uh, to Camp William Penn and basically force him to acknowledge in camp that that's their son because they never got a, a legal marriage in the eyes of the law. So she was basically demanding him to say it. And after a very uncomfortable moment, which other soldiers report, he does. Mm -hmm. uh, and that actually is going to be very important because he'll die as a prisoner of war later on for refusing to dig a ditch because he wants to prove he's a man, some would argue. Um, or he's also just looking at it that he sees it as derogatory that he's doing such work. 
their family will never recover. All right. Um, but she will agitate for a pension on behalf of her son, uh, which he will get. But it's a very complicated story. Um, Northern black women in places like New York City will make themselves visible at um, the Rikers Island camp for the 20th, 26th and 31st USCI by creating basically medical uh, stations for them, uh, cooking for them, uh, helping to, to provide what the federal government and the War Department should have, food, right? So black women are, are there. They're also supporting in terms of going to parades. They're the ones um, that are raising the money for um, the regimental flags. But the odd thing is, which I sadly don't mention in this book, but hopefully will in another project, is that women, black and white, are going to always be visible at these public parades for the military as they go off to war. But in many cases, they're not allowed to speak because a man will usually speak on their behalf. And this is also happening to black women. But to me, what's important is that these women are there and they're by physically being there and doing in many cases, what whites are doing North and South, they're saying that we should be treated with the same respect. Uh, Judith Giesberg um, at Villanova does some great work on black Philadelphian women as they agitate um, to go to camp by using their bodies in public spaces, the streetcars and many um, rail cars as well, um, where they put the bodies on the line. And what I mean by that is by them, by these black women stepping on these forms of public transportation, they are essentially opening themselves up to physical violence, which in Philadelphia was unfortunately more common uh, than people give it credit to. As I often say, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love that hates brothers and sisters. Right. Uh, <laughs> and these black women, by going to the camps to support these black men who are going to, uh, in one of the ways, reunify the union, right? To essentially enforce military policy and reconstruction, to save uh, enslaved people, to liberate them, to do everything and more that the federal government wants these black women open themselves up to threats of violence. Why do they do it? I mean, there's so many layers to that. And it's so, to me, that demonstrates that these black women are participating uh, in, in inventive ways, even if others don't see it as such. So you kind of allude to this about, um, you know, the long-term impact of military service. I mean, I'm sure um, Frederick Douglass's sons can afford not to, to work for wages or to be away, you know? And so when we're looking at, the black middle class, I'm sure their experiences is different in terms of an economic impact on the family. But let's mm. say the most, the more typical um, enlistee, is there like a generational impact on their participation? Is yeah. it something that gives them, I mean, the one guy you mentioned that gets the $800, you know, <laughs> and bounty for it, obviously that would change, could change your family for generations. Right. But for others, pulling you out of the workforce might be a really negative impact. So I'm kind of curious, like, who are the winners and losers in all of this? <laughs> ah, that's a great one. Well, even I, I should clarify with the bounties, you're not always necessarily getting all the money up front, right? Like mm -hmm. in some cases, it might even only be $33 of a $100 bounty, or it might be $100 out of a $250 bounty. And that's not just for blacks, that's in general, because the federal government was concerned with what they termed as a bounty jumper, someone who basically enlists, gets the money and leaves, which right. people of all races in North and South were doing that, right? So it's not this anomaly, but it, it was a legitimate concern. And uh, Brian Lusky's new book, Men, is, I think it's Men Are Cheap, Men Is Cheap, talks about that, which is really good. Um, so I'm, 
I'm still trying to unpack the proper way to uh, illuminate this because I go back and forth. There, I guess it depends on who we're talking about and the context. Arguably, they win and lose, right? Uh, one can make the argument, and even Frederick Douglass's sons actually do struggle financially after the war for different reasons. So even um, being black middle class, you're actually, or even elite, you're still struggling financially for different reasons. Um, because in the case of Douglas, he overextends himself trying to help support the community in different ways, which trickles down to his children. I guess for me, part of this project I want to explore is for some serving in the military, whether it's for an idealistic purpose or financial, the fact is they're getting a regulated pay, um, that they're getting the opportunity to reshape American society, that they're getting an opportunity and ultimately to protect enslaved people to free enslaved people, right? Uh, that they're getting an opportunity to have a direct role in hopefully what American society will be with them in it. Uh, there's a number of, of works that look at the po- immediate post-Civil War and occupation um, that that is black soldiers doing that predominantly. And even though it's horrible, right? Because the reason that they're in there is that the War Department states uh, in many cases that white soldiers in the Union had earned the right to go home because they had been in the war the longest. Except, sure, that's true, Excuse me. But part of that is because the War Department wouldn't allow black men to enlist unless they passed as white. So it's not really their fault. But by overextending their service, arguably they lose. A lot of black soldiers will die or have long term injuries uh, as a result of their extension in service as they actually go out to Texas. Um, so if, and this is something that um, I would love to share more about, is actually the, the Northern black experience at the Mexican border because the federal government becomes concerned with Napoleon III in uh, Mexico and his potential uh, invasion, that's black soldiers doing that work. That's black soldiers going out west uh, and unfortunately subduing by force many Native Americans. Um, That's black soldiers in the South we know about occupying um, the former Confederacy to protect African Americans who are now freed and enforce new federal policy. So is it a win? Of course. They're getting an opportunity to save and protect, to enforce the law. And let's keep it real, to have a gun and to enforce, to be seen as a citizen while telling former uh, Confederates that you're not, and that if you disobey me, there is a consequence. To be told that you are valuable to the federal government in terms of finally a nation, a reunified country. Um, That's amazing to me. But at the exact same time, the disabilities, the death that these people experience, whether we're talking typhoid fever, diarrhea, um, delirium of tremors, uh, I mean, just the, the rampant disease that will come, particularly as they go out to Texas in some cases because they're overextended from the supply lines, will have a long-term effect on these soldiers if they survive. And I'm not even getting into the emotional, psychological components uh, you know, I'm only talking about the bacterial, the viral, the, 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 the war wounds that we can see, right, or that can be examined, not the ones that are internal um, and they're unwilling to diagnose. Uh, for the families, it goes a number of different ways. I look at families of Jacob G. Jackson, Alfred Rothwell, Charles Dietz, George Glasgow, Robert Streets, and Andrew White. These men die in service. Most of them are killed in action. So they get, one could argue, uh, what Drew Gilpin Faust and others know as that good death, right? That they, they died these heroic deaths. Heroic, I'm putting quotes around that. Right? They got the opportunity to, to face the enemy in combat, and they die. 
So they're heroes, right? Whether they're dying at the Battle of Alesti in Florida or even at Morris Island in South Carolina, because in some cases, my regiments are at the same place where the 54th is at, but they're not discussed. But what happens to the families that are left behind, right? Uh, this is, to me, the big thing to unpack is, so on one level, yes, for the children um, who are, let's say, under six years old, they, don't, they might not be able to comprehend that my father's gone and should be seen as a national hero, even to the widow who is being hit with what we know as the invisible bullet, right? The getting the news of the death, which is usually coming either through a letter from someone on the front lines or in the newspaper, which is even more impersonal, right? Just a list of names. Right. How is that empowering? How is that you've won? You've lost not only your a key contributor to your household financially, but someone that you cared about on an emotional, personal level. And the problem then becomes this issue of winning and losing when you apply for a pension. If you were as a widow did not get a legal marriage and you're freeborn, you don't get a pension. Even if the black community sees you as husband and wife, the federal government will later pass a policy that gives that right to enslave, formerly enslaved people. It says you didn't need documentation because they understand the, the complexity right, of a taken up marriage. But for free blacks, you don't get that privilege. So you're punished. So in many cases, you don't get the ability to get economic restitution and also being acknowledged for your sacrifices. You let your relative go and serve, right? Or you supported that. Or even if you didn't, you eventually came to, to terms with it. So you're denied a pension. So now you've lost money. You've lost a partner. You're probably also wondering, what was it all about? Like, what, what am I gaining? Yes, the country and Black people have gained all this. What about me? Right. So it's this push and pull on um, trying to circum to navigate victory, like, and so it's both, um, which makes it hard. And the pensions, unfortunately, are extremely invasive into Black life. So I guess to kind of start wrapping things up, one of the things I want to accomplish with these podcasts is to to think about things differently than how we might cover it in a classroom or reading an article about something, and to maybe thinking think about some of these people in more 21st century ways. So one thing I'm asking all of our um, people that I interview is to sort of imagine an individual is on Instagram and what sort of hashtags they may use to, to introduce themselves or to describe themselves. So I'm, I'm thinking what hashtags might, you know, a specific man or a typical black and less C use. Ooh, hashtag bounty. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hashtag. <laughs> um, let's see. What's a good one? Uh, hashtag Black Manhood. Uh, hashtag Family. Um, and I would say hashtag Pension or or Any, Black Pension. Anything for the wives that they may use? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, oh, for the wives, I would say uh, that's a good. And for the children, I mean, it's um. Let's see here. Hashtag We Matter Too. Uh, hashtag. Black history matters because these pensions are black history, even though they are military records. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would say hashtag never forget us. Okay. Those are great. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I'm going to hit you up um, for an interview on black soldiers in the borderland. That sounds oh, Spoiler fantastic. alert. It's really depressing. <laughs> it's um, really depressing. But yeah, I appreciate your time and, uh, Good luck with all your research. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. Thank you very much for the opportunity and uh, have a good one. 
You too. Bye-bye.